This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. Although we don't have a poultry industry here in Kansas, the nearby states of Arkansas, Oklahoma, and Missouri do. We use this to our advantage here in southeast Kansas as a lot of poultry litter is spread on our pastures and crops. Poultry litter is a great fertilizer as it is high in N, P, K, and nearly all the secondary and micronutrients. However, litter application isn't as straightforward as chemical fertilizers, and there's a whole lot of variation in litter sources. The old general rule for chicken litter nutrient content is 50-50-50, meaning 50 pounds of nitrogen, 50 pounds of phosphorus, and 50 pounds of potassium. However, this can be very inaccurate. Real nutrient content can be from twice the 50-50-50 rule to less than half of the rule. Nutrient content of litter varies widely based upon type, processing, and moisture. In recent years, litter has become more likely to contain less phosphorus than it used to because of the effectiveness in poultry feeding. Poultry housing cleaning practices have changed somewhat too. Many houses don't clean out the whole floor between poultry rotations. They just take the top few inches in what would be the most nutrient-dense litter. The age of litter matters as well. As litter is composted, P and K values can increase as the pile becomes more concentrated. Over time, nitrogen is released in the atmosphere or is converted into integrating forms. Ask the company where you are buying the litter if they have a nutrient analysis, or you can take samples yourself and send it off for testing. Sometimes litter can have rocks in it as well, depending on the cleaning and storing practices of the storage facility. When it comes to applying litter, the nitrogen is tricky, as 75-85% to 85% of it is in an organic form, with the remaining 15-25% to 25% being mainly ammonia. Only half the organic end is available to plants in the first year, and only when the soil is warm enough for organic matter mineralization. The ammonia fraction can be lost to volatilization if not incorporated after application. Put it all together, it can be hard to determine how much nitrogen a crop gets from a litter application, but there are some basic estimates that can be used as a guide. Phosphorus and potassium are straighter forward. If the background phosphorus level in the field is good before application, then nearly 100% of the phosphorus is available. If the background phosphorus is somewhat low, below 10 parts per million, then the soil can absorb 30-40% to 40 of the phosphorus before it is available to plants. This is more likely in acidic, heavy clay soils. Potassium, however, is 100% available in most cases. Poultry litter has plenty of secondary and micronutrients as well. It averages 10 pounds of sulfur per ton, half a pound of zinc per ton, and 8 pounds of magnesium. It carries around 10 pounds of sodium too, which is not necessarily a good thing, but is unlikely to be a problem around here. In many fields, litter needs to be applied based upon the phosphorus recommendation, with the rest of the needed nitrogen coming from other inorganic fertilizer sources. In a way, we should consider litter to be like a phosphorus fertilizer like MAP and DAP. The agronomic optimum level of phosphorus is 20 parts per million, and my recommendation is to stop phosphorus applications once levels get above 30 parts per million. At this point, litter won't be as cost-effective as a chemical fertilizer. For more information on poultry litter application, please call 620-724-8233. This has been James Coover with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. This is Wendy Powell, your livestock production agent with the Wildcat Extension District. Fences need to be horse high, pig tight, and bull strong. But if you're only working with one of these species, do all fences need to be high, tight, and strong? There are no two situations the same. Each design is unique. 
To prevent damage or loss of livestock due to fence failure, plan and build for the worst situation. Animals that are panicked or newly weaned, or especially hungry or thirsty animals, are apt to pressure a fence. There are varying factors to consider with each livestock species. A good permanent perimeter fence is recommended for sheep and goats. Not only should this contain your livestock, but also deter predators. Barbed wire fences will have small spacing between wires, possibly with the electric fence used in combination. A strong charge is required. Sheep have insulating wool and small ruminants are short in stature. Wires must be close to the ground and clear of vegetation to reduce grounding. Special electrified net fences have proven very effective for sheep and goats, as well as securely overlaying a panel-style fence over existing barbed wire fence. Cattle fencing in southeast Kansas is typically barbed wire and T-posts. Commonly five wires are used, occasionally you'll see four or six wires employed. By and large, permanent fencing needs to be on perimeters. Interior fencing can be temporary electric fencing. Electric fences for cattle can have fewer wires and be higher off the ground compared to small ruminants. For stock that has experience with the electric fence, one wire may be sufficient. When bulls are with the herd, fences need to be checked frequently as bulls will challenge them more than cows. Highly visible fences are required to contain horses. These creatures are fast moving and may not see a fence before it's too late. Wire fences should not contain barbs. Electric fences should be made with tape, a wide, visible material. Horses are very sensitive to shock and can be unpredictable, easily becoming entangled and injured. Alpaca fencing focuses on keeping out predators, rather than keeping the critters in. Fencing five foot tall and very sturdy is suggested. Non-climb is a plus. University of Massachusetts Amherst recommends using two electric wires running along the outer perimeter at 6 and 24 inches above the ground to prevent predators from either digging or climbing. The small spacing between the wire fences, 2 inches by 4 inches, helps protect animals from getting their legs or necks caught. Non-climb fences should be woven rather than welded. Cattle fencing is discouraged for alpacas as they have long necks, long enough to go through fences and then loop back through another space and be stuck. All fences should be checked for security regularly. Kansas is a fence-in state, meaning that animal owners are responsible for keeping their livestock contained. To learn more about fencing livestock, give me a call at the Labette County Extension Office, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is a Damon Strauss, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Historically, windbreaks have been planted for a variety of reasons. Some were planted as landscaping by settlers who missed the forests of their previous homes. Others were planted as winter protection for homes and livestock. Windbreaks were also established to reduce wind erosion during the Dust Bowl era, when more than 3,500 miles of tree rows were planted. An important yet often overlooked benefit of windbreaks is wildlife habitat. Windbreaks provide essential woody cover, especially in areas where no native woodlands exist. Wildlife have three essential needs for survival, food, water, and cover. 
A windbreak supplies cover. Cover is necessary for nesting, birthing, escape, and protection from the elements. Well-designed windbreaks provide a variety of habitat benefits and can create travel corridors to link wooded areas together. Permanent homes for wildlife can be created when locating the planting adjacent to a water source, such as a pond. If the purpose of a windbreak is to protect a large spectrum of wildlife, a multi-row planting consisting of evergreens, shrubs, and tall, deciduous trees will provide permanent homes for many species of wildlife. However, if upland game birds are the desired species, then do not include tall, deciduous trees in the planting design, as hawks and owls will use them as perches to look for prey and deter upland game birds. The area adjacent to the windbreak can also be used to further wildlife habitat enhancement. This can be achieved by planting a strip of native grass, a green strip, or food plots. The best wildlife benefits are realized when windbreaks are planted in an east-west direction. During winter months, direct sunlight is available on southern rows throughout the day where wind protection is also the greatest. Successful establishment of a windbreak involves proper site preparation, good planting procedures, weed control, and supplemental watering when needed. Managing established windbreaks includes protection from wildlife and livestock. Livestock should never be permitted in a windbreak as they can physically damage trees and shrubs and compact the soil, which will result in poor tree health. A firebreak around a windbreak helps provide protection from wildlife as well. Older windbreaks require maintenance to keep them healthy and functional. Removing some of the trees and or adding new plantings may be necessary. Thinning reduces the competition between trees, providing for increased longevity. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. Windbreaks serve many functions on properties both large and small. They reduce soil erosion, protect crops, reduce energy consumption in the home, control snow accumulation, shelter livestock, provide habitats for wildlife, and beautify properties. However, it is important to build windbreaks correctly to achieve your desired goals. This is done by controlling the height, density, length, and orientation of your windbreak. Height is determined by the tallest tree species in your windbreak. Windbreaks reduce wind speeds up to 30 times their height downwind. The effective protection area of a multi-row windbreak will be based on the height of the tallest row. The density of the windbreak determines how much wind passes through. Denser windbreaks are paradoxically worse at reducing the impacts of wind thanks to air pressure. By forcing all of the wind up over the windbreak, a low pressure area forms on the back side and air is violently forced back down to fill the gap. This shrinks the effective area of the windbreak because the lower the air pressure, the faster the gusty air returns. Instead of maximizing density, small farmsteads should aim for 60 to 80% density, while crop fields should offer a windbreak with 40 to 60% density. Windbreaks should be oriented at a right angle against the prevailing winds. In the winter, these winds come from the northwest. In the summer, they come from the southwest. 
As the winds hit the windbreak, the wind will curve around the ends of the rows due to the aforementioned low pressure area. For this reason, windbreak lengths should be at least 10 times their maximum height. Windbreaks, quite literally, live or die by the selection of trees and shrubs grown in them. Multiple layers of plants are best for maintaining diversity in case of disease or insect pressures and reduce the severity of gaps in planting because of tree death. However, sometimes multiple rows of trees and shrubs are not feasible in smaller lots. A single row windbreak can still be effective as a windbreak, but proper maintenance and replacement of failed trees is essential to guarantee its effectiveness. Evergreens are preferred for their year-round foliage, but deciduous trees can still protect crops during the growing season, provide moderate wind protection while leaves are on the tree, and affect snow dispersal. Whether deciduous or evergreen, trees must be extremely tolerant of our unpredictable climate to maximize the chance of success. On bigger lots, your windbreak can have multiple rows, which increases its total density. The tallest species should always be in the row outward facing the prevailing winds. Each successive row inside the area you want to protect should be the next tallest species. By making each row a different species of tree or shrub, you increase the value of your windbreak to wildlife and reduce the chance of catastrophic loss to insect or diseases. Incorporating food plants into your windbreak gives you a potential food crop in addition to all the other benefits. Consider planting trees like pecans, persimmons, and pawpaws, and shrubs like buffalo currants, blueberries, and aronia into your windbreaks for a tasty alternative food source. For more information on today's topic, contact your local extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.